Um, hey, if this is your first time joining us, we're glad you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, we're glad that you're tuning in. That Wherever that's from, if, whether that's from your house or a friend's house, or uh, we're just glad that everyone can be together, both in person and online. We're starting a new series. It's titled Faces of Grace. And so this is the perfect time to show up. Because over the next seven weeks, we're going to be unpacking this this term that maybe we've heard uh, growing up or uh, maybe our grandparents or our parents or friends have talked to us about this word, grace. It's kind of ambiguous, right? There's some definitions that we're going to try to unpack, but we're going to be journeying through looking at stories in the Bible and letting the humanity of the people we read about really shine through because they magnify God's grace, not only in their lives, but in our lives. So if you would just... Bow your heads with me. We're going to have a, another word of prayer. Father, we are just, we're just lifting you up, Lord, because we know that ultimately the only reason why we're here to gather is because of you. Lord, it, it, from an outward perspective, it doesn't really make sense to wake up and get dressed on a Saturday morning and, and go to a building to, to sing some songs or to, to listen to music and, and spend time in prayer or, or even really uh, read a book. Uh, together, Lord, from an outward perspective, it makes no sense, but under the, the blood of Jesus, it makes perfect sense, for we are here because of your great love for us, and it changes everything. And so, Lord, we just ask that you'd be with us in this service, and that as we begin this series, that it would convict our hearts and allow us to see where it is that you are showing us grace in our own personal lives, for we are praying this in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. There's this man, his name is uh, Pastor Wang Yi, and he has been sentenced to prison for nine years. And the article reads that he was uh, a subversion of state power. So Pastor Wang Yi, he was one of China's most influential public figures in 2004. He's a lawyer by trade. He went to Chengdu University. And in 2005, he has a conversion experience. He gets baptized, and then that leads him into ministry to becoming an ordained pastor. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but China is currently outgrowing any other country in Christian conversion. China is really on the forefront of just this explosion of the gospel where so many are coming to know of the love that Jesus has for them and committing their lives to that. They're committing their lives to, to living for Jesus. And the interesting thing about China is they're not allowed to do evangelism. It's illegal. And so they're meeting in homes. Now, if you think about that, there's already a crisis happening in China where the government is persecuting Christians. That's, that's one crisis. But now there's a second crisis, a coronavirus Right? Where how do you meet in homes when that's the only way that you can gather as a church when small gatherings, small uh, in-home gatherings might be hotbeds for the spread of this virus? And so Pastor Wang Yi has been trying to minister even from his jail cell still to this day. And the number one thing that he's been uh, speaking about, preaching on, is not maybe what you would think about, Right? Being in two crises, you might think, okay, he's talking about the, the apocalyptic end that the Bible portrays. The book of Revelation. He's taking his church members through the book of Revelation. Now, Pastor Wang Yi has a 700-member group of house churches. He's one of the most prominent pastors in China. 
he got to meet a former president in 2008 and got to talk about religious liberty. This is a man who God has elevated to a platform to proclaim the gospel, and he is not talking about the book of Revelation. He's not even going through the Sermon on the Mount and kingdom culture. No, he has doubled down on grace. In fact, his conviction is that grace is what fuels the church. And so we're going to unpack what this means. Because if you were to Google grace, you would find many definitions. You would find a religious definition. You would, you would find a secular definition. If you looked at some theologians, you would find maybe these really awesome uh, paragraphs to kind of define grace. But most people have defined it simply as unmerited favor. Which, that's a good, that's a good definition. But for many of us, that's not in our common day vocabulary of merit and favor. Right? We think of maybe the Hunger Games, where the, may the odds be ever in your favor. Or you, you might think of, um, I'm not going to earn it by any merit. But really, these words might be kind of foreign to us, because we don't use them every single day. Right? So what actually is grace? And as I was really trying to find, I wanted to find a really succinct definition of grace for us. So that we could, it could kind of carry us through this series. And as I studied scripture... I, I was continually let down trying to find a very succinct definition of grace. See, the Bible doesn't give this beautiful uh, definition like it, it does when God's character is in question. You have 1 John 4, 8, God is love, right? That's very succinct. It captures this, the beauty of God's character. He is love. Not he is loving, but his very essence is love. But then you also have a definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. But when you look for a very succinct definition of grace, you will not find one in the Bible. You just won't. And I am convinced that it is because God has no succinct definition because God uses people to define it. That the book of the Bible... All 66 books compiled by 44 different authors and all of the faces and the individuals that we read about define grace for us. And so as we begin this journey, seven weeks, we're going to be looking at many faces and hopefully you'll see your face in these faces. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking at really probably one of the more influential individuals in Scripture uh, before he is Abraham, he is Abram. So Genesis chapter 12, just say amen when you get there. If it's muffled, we'll, just any noise, we'll, we'll take it as amen. Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be reading in verse, uh, picking up in verse 1. We're looking at the story of Abram. Here is a man who is deemed really the father of faith. In fact, he will come up several times in scripture, and so we're going to go right to the beginning of his story. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and to the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the call is pretty simple, right? Abram is told to go. He's told to leave his country. So he's told to leave his nationalism behind. He's told to leave his country culture behind. And he, he might be going to another land where he might not know the language. He might not know what the food is like. 
he might not know the intricacies of that society, and so he might stick out like a sore thumb, and yet he's still told to go, to leave his country. But not only his country, but his relatives' home. So he's told to leave his tribe, those who are close to him, those who might vibe with him on how to best govern society. Right? He's told to leave his relatives, his tribe. But then he's also told to leave his immediate security blanket, which is his family, his immediate family. Now, in this culture, you would have your, your father, who was primary caretaker, the patriarch, right? And he provided for you. And if you were the oldest son, then you would take over that role when your father passed. And you were the immediate provider. You were the one who had to sit in meetings and had to handle conflict and had to project kind of what we were going to do as a family. And he's told to leave that, his security blanket. And what is his response? Well, in verse 4 it says, So Abraham or Abram went forth as the Lord had said to him. But it's not just Abram going. See, his nephew Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took uh, Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the purchases which they had acquired in Haran. So they go. Abram leaves. Now that takes a lot of faith. Now I don't know about you, but when I was first hearing of the gospel, I was first reading of the gospel, and I was learning that it could transform my heart, I'd find these really cute promises in the Bible, right? Like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And I'd be like, okay, God, you know the plans for me. This is great. I'm just going to let you have the plans, and I'm just going to be in the back seat because it's comfortable. You know, maybe there's some, some smoothies that we could pick up, right? That'd be, that'd be great. I'll let you lead, and I'll just be in the back seat, right? But how often do we start that way, and then all of a sudden, before we realize it, we're like, now, whoa, 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 you just passed Smoothie King. Why are we turning left here? Are you sure this is the right way to go? It's very easy to become a backseat driver after initially saying, okay, God, I'll let you have control. That's fine. That's fine. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, we don't realize that our voice is really the prominent voice. And so Abram, he goes. He's a, he's a man of faith. In fact, he gets to the land, and he does something that I certainly would not do. He doesn't even check out the land at first. He gets to the land, and God says, hey, this is it. And he's like, okay, great. He doesn't go and survey the soil. He doesn't go and look if there's any fruit trees. He's, he builds an altar. And he worships the Lord. So obviously he's a very devout man. He's a man of faith. So he's done everything right. He's living on the promises of God. I remember I, I was incredibly intimidated when I had to sell my truck. It was the first time I ever went through the selling a vehicle process I had a 2006 Toyota Tacoma, 4x4, Apple Play. It was great. Manual transmission. It was way too much fun. Nobody bullied me in the South because you're in a truck, right? When you're in a smaller vehicle, everyone thinks that they can just run you over. But you get in a truck and people socially distance on the highway. It's great. So I remember having to sell my truck. And as I'm going through that process, I'm kind of, you know, looking to gauge, okay, how much can I get for it and, and et cetera. And, and this man comes, comes up, and he, he wants to check out the truck. And so we meet at, at the Marietta Church parking lot. He's from Rome, Georgia. And he gets out, and he's got a flashlight. And we pop the trunk, and he starts shining this flashlight in the engine. And I just changed some spark plugs, and they're really difficult to get in the Tacoma engine. So I unplugged something, and it sprayed this liquid everywhere. 
And so I had tried my best to clean it up when I put the engine back together, but he saw some residue. So he's like, hey, what's this? Do you, are you aware of this? He's inspecting everything. He got up under there to look if there was rust. He wanted to know if the four-wheel drive worked, because why would, he wants to know what is it exactly that I'm going to get. Abram, his first inclination is we're going to build an altar. We're not going to survey the land. We're going to build an altar, and we're going to worship God. Why? Because he has said this is where it is. So he's a man of faith. He's a tremendous man of faith. But then something happens. He runs into adversity. In verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on your account. Now hold on a minute. This is a complete plot twist, in my opinion. Because you have Abraham, he's doing everything right. He said, okay, Lord, you said go, I'm going. I'm stepping out. Right? It's great. I'm stepping out. Okay, this is the land. Cool. Let's build an altar. I'll survey it later. I believe you, Lord. This is going to be a great land. Now, all of a sudden, adversity arises. A famine hits, and he... Maybe perhaps he's approaching Egypt and he's starting to think through. Now, wait a second. They might think that you're really, really beautiful because I do. And so then they're going to kill me and take you. And so what does he do? He resorts to his plan. He resorts to his strength. It's no longer God's plan. It's no longer God's strength. It's now his. Isn't it interesting that when adversity arises, when crisis comes into our lives... We often say, okay, God, it's kind of uncomfortable now, so I'm going to take over from here. Certainly, yeah, 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 I've read about you know what you're doing, but, I mean, it's my life, God, so I'm, I'm going to take it from here. Don't worry, I'll take it from here. I'll hand it back over to you in a little bit, but I'm going to take it from here. That's what Abraham does, and so he comes up with this plan. Hey, say you're my sister, which, in a way, we find out later, technically isn't a full-on lie, but let's be honest, it's a lie. He's bearing false witness. He's married to... Sarah. It's his wife. It's not his sister. It's his wife. So he's lying. Now that seems contradictory to the gospel. So what has happened? See, Abram then starts to rely on his own strength. And because of that, it seems to go well at first. In verse 15, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. Oh, Pharaoh, you got to come and check out this lady that's just come in from another land. We think that you would think she's absolutely beautiful. And so Pharaoh goes, and, and the woman, Sarah, is taken into Pharaoh's house. In verse 16, therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It's turning out well for Abram, except for the fact that he now doesn't have his wife. He's just given his wife over to an, another emperor, another family. She's not going to be treated the same. She's not going to have the same place in the home that she had beforehand. So Abram clearly is veering off from living inside God's grace. He's veering off. He's relying on his own strength. Now, the interesting thing about when we read the Bible is sometimes because we know the story and we know how it's going to end, we just kind of gloss over 
what would have happened if it wasn't this way? See, when I was first to sit down and read the Bible, I was blown away with how human these individuals are. I thought, you should be perfect. You're in the Bible. No. These individuals have so many problems. It makes me think, man, you know, I might be doing all right. And then, I, and then God hits me across the head and reminds me, no, 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 not even close. But these are imperfect human beings that are part of this story of God. And so Abram has just given his wife away and received compensation for it. This is a pretty far detour from what God had in store for him. Now, Abram, that, that could be the end of the story. We might never hear of Abram ever again. He just gave his wife away. He got money. There's no way he's ever getting him back or getting her back, right? It's not one of those uh, spy stories, Nelson, where uh, maybe Abram sneaks in in the, in the you know, middle of the night and he's got a face covering, right? And he's sneaking in and he steals his wife back and then they leave and they, you know, they ride off to the sunset on horseback, right? Like there's one of these legendary stories. That's not what happens. In fact, it takes God's intervention for Abram to have a second chance. You see, God has to intervene through a plague, so in verse 17, it says, The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, it doesn't say all of Egypt. It says Pharaoh and his household. So it's not all of Egypt. It's just the immediate group. This is the most powerful man in the world at this time. They've come there because there's a famine. So this man, Pharaoh, has the right to say, I will let you eat and live, or I will not let you eat and die. He has that type of power. Lives are in his hands, and now Pharaoh has a plague. And he's a smart man. You don't become Pharaoh by being an unintelligent individual. And so he realizes, now hold on, hold on a second, how could this plague come about? Well, there's this new couple, there's this family, brother and sister, that came, and now the sister is my wife, and now we're sick. And so he's starting to put two and two together, and it's equal, equaling four, but also, in verse 18, it shows us that he had a little bit of a, more of an understanding than we might assume. It says, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Now, I don't know how he found out that information. But the very fact that Pharaoh has not killed Abram is an act of grace. Because this is the most powerful man in the world at this time. And so he is communicating with Abram, who has just deceived him and caused pain and suffering on his family. There's no way Pharaoh is not angry. There's no way Pharaoh is not bitter. There's no way Pharaoh's natural inclination is not to have Abram killed and probably Sarai killed. But instead... In verse 19, it says, But why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. You have Abram standing before the most powerful man, guilty of deceit. Guilty. It's come out. His sin is, is out in the open, and he's guilty, and he's sent away free. 
Now, why, is, why does that happen? Because of God's intervention. Because of God's grace. Because 2,000 years in the future, there would be another man standing before Pontius Pilate, who is innocent, but would be condemned on Abraham's behalf. It's grace that allows Abram to have a second chance. When adversity came, and Abraham starts to rely on his own strength, God doesn't leave. Somebody say amen. God doesn't leave. And so, the only reason why we have Genesis 13, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and then in verse 18 it says that he finds this place, and he builds his house, and there he builds an altar. Is because of God's grace to give him another chance. Not because of his performance, but because of his grace. See, grace is this weird construct of being unequal, of severe inequality, but receiving just absolute, superior love and forgiveness. Pastor Wang Yi, sentenced to nine years in prison, currently serving the sentence because he's a subversion to the government. That subversion is him preaching grace. It's not saying let's riot. It's not saying let's overthrow the government. It's God's grace reigns in our lives. And so our king is Jesus. He says absolute inequality leads to absolute grace because inequality means the inferior has no right to demand and the superior has no responsibility to give. He says that grace demonstrates the promise of the gospel itself, the power of the gospel, and the primary principle of the Christian life. For Christians, grace becomes the motivation for life and the governing principle. Because of grace, we live differently. Not because we white-knuckle it. Now, when I was in Australia, my dad convinced me. He often convinces me to do rather crazy things. He's an adrenaline junkie. And so he convinced me to learn how to fly hang gliders. And I thought, okay, you know, hang gliders, that sounds fun. It's like a giant kite, but there's, you know, nothing tying you to the ground or tethering you to the ground. So you're basically like a bird. Thinking, okay, this is probably safe. Yeah, it'll be great. So you're clipped into a kite. That's, that's hang gliding, giant kite that can keep your body weight. And so I remember standing there. And I'm at Stanwell Tops in Australia, and right in front of me is the ocean. And to my right is where I'm going to have to land several, like, hundred feet down, or, you know, several thousand feet down, right? Probably, like, a mile. I'm terrible at gauging distance, so it was forever away, in my opinion, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm being told, okay, I'm supposed to land on this beach. So I have to launch going out towards the ocean and somehow turn and then to go land down on the beach when I want to land. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah, right, it's, it's going to be safe. Sure, it's going to be great. The number one thing they teach you when you're flying a hang glider is to not hold on tightly. They say don't white-knuckle it. Because when you white-knuckle it, you'll fall out of the sky. The hang glider just naturally wants to fly itself. You're just supposed to give subtle little inputs, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you where you want to go, and you won't fall out of the sky. But the minute you get fearful and you start to white-knuckle, you're going to fall. And so I remember thinking, okay, okay, let's go. yeah, 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 we'll, we'll get this, we'll figure it out. So I launch, and all of a sudden I'm taken up, 
and now I'm flying, and there's nobody else there. It's just me attached to this giant kite in the air, and now I have to go and land. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, we're doing the inputs. I'm doing exactly what I got taught to do. And as I get closer to the beach, I start to realize something. There's a gathering happening on the beach. There's a man, and there's a woman, and they're standing next to each other, facing each other. There's a man in between, kind of further back. There's a lot of chairs. It looks like there was an individual who was playing a musical instrument, but I'm from a good distance, so I can't quite see. And I start to get closer. Now, the way that you're supposed to land is you, you take a hard right, and then you take a hard left, and you come down in this little chute right on the beach in between these, like, groups of trees. But if you get nervous to not white-knuckle it, they say just turn and start heading down the beach. And I got nervous. And so I start heading down the beach. And as I get closer, I can start to hear words being said. And then I can start to identify facial features. And then I realize that I might crash a wedding. <laughs> and so I'm trying my absolute best to come down as soon as possible, but under safe guidance. And I landed probably 100 feet. No more than the back door and where I am from the final row of chairs. The funny thing is, is that after I told my dad, he said, well, at least you didn't white-knuckle it, because you have, if you had white-knuckled it, you would have just gone into the ocean, and it's better to crash a wedding than to crash into the ocean. It's interesting, because in our Christian experience, sometimes we think if we pray more, if we read the Bible more, if we sing more in tune, we're going to have a better relationship with God. So we start to white-knuckle it. But in reality, it's because of grace. Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing, that's supposed to be bringing, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's not more Bible study. It's not more prayer. It's not more singing. It's not more church attendance. It's not better tithe. It's the grace of God that has appeared to all men that instructs us. It's the grace of God that changes everything. And when we read the story of Abram, and we see him being set free from standing before the most powerful man in his world, it should make us think of the God-man who stood before Pilate and was condemned for us. See, the Apostle Paul, as he picks up in Romans, he starts to account, or, uh, tell the story of Abraham. And Abraham doesn't have all of these mishaps. It doesn't tell of the time that Abraham struggled with faith and lied. It doesn't tell of the time that Abraham said, okay, yeah, we're going to have a child by promise, and so I will just uh, marry my, uh, my uh, maid, my, my servant, and we'll have the child from promise by that. He, it doesn't tell that story. No, it says that he believed God. He believed that God was for him. He believed that God loved him and that it was all about God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it says this, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. So it's for us as well. So when we read the story of Abraham, we should see our face. We should see the grace that is given to us daily. For the only reason why we are here is because of his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we just want to thank you because, Lord, we know that we are 
beginning a sermon series. Lord, we've begun. And we're going to be looking at the way that you have defined grace in the Bible, not with this beautiful, succinct definition, because, Lord, the, the Bible tells us that your love is unfathomable, that it's, it's almost hard to even convey. And so, Lord, we know that there's no succinct definition for the, the definition is from the lives of the people that are a part of this story. And so, Lord, we think of our lives and the ways that you have already intervened on our behalf when we have strayed and relied on our own strength. So, Lord, may we continue to see the faces of grace so that this church can be a place where everyone can come and hear the good news that you love them. Lord, we give you thanks in all these things, and we say this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said...